Well, it's, uh, it's a privilege to be with you, and we've, Tori and I've certainly missed you when we've not been here. We've, uh, I've been doing an interim in uh, Lexington at Southern Heights Baptist Church, leading uh, worship up there, and though we love them dearly, they are certainly not Grace Baptist Church, and we, uh, we love them dearly, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity God has afforded me uh, to preach here tonight, and also Bill for being gracious to share his pulpit. Um, I really appreciate that. I didn't know what to preach tonight. It's one of those things like, what do you preach? So I just, I did borrow one of Bill's sermons. So Hebrews chapter 1. <laughs> Don't worry, I just have 36 points. I get nervous and humor is the only thing that helps me and Bill's the easiest target. No, but no, he... Tonight, we're going to be talking about Psalm 150 and about worship. To me, that is one of the most important things in the life of the church, is worship. And I hope to, to demonstrate that if you don't believe that already, which hopefully, if you're believers, you believe that. But in previous weeks, we've heard about the supremacy of Christ all through the book of Colossians. Todd and Scott have done an amazing job, and even Bill jumped in on one sermon in the series, and what an amazing thing to see the supremacy of Christ. The fact that Christ is the name above all names and he is the one who is worthy to be praised. I just want to read a verse in Colossians where he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jeff read that scripture, and it's amazing how Jeff and I sometimes are always on the same page and can think the same thought. And in fact, it's Christ is before all things, and everything was created for Christ. Christ is the reason why everything was created. Our worship of God is why everything was created. We have a God who demands universal praise. And what I mean by universal praise is that all of creation, all the universes, that was made for the sole purpose of glorifying God. Nothing less. All animals, mankind, the church, that was created to glorify God. I think John Piper said it best in, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, when he said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Oftentimes in the church, though, we think that the purpose of the church is missions. Now, that is a wonderful thing that we do at the church, and I think Grace Baptist Church does it very well. But worship is the purpose of the church. We were created to glorify God. You were created to glorify God. The problem of why we see missions exist, why Christ had to come, is because worship doesn't exist. We have turned it into idolatry. And I love how he says that worship is ultimate. Because you think about it, we will not be doing missions when we get to heaven. We will worship. That is what we will do. I love how he says it's a temporary necessity because worship abides forever. And that ought to be what what's just focuses our life on Christ and what really just kind of coats our lives is because we realize that worship is forever. 
The problem, I think, in the church today is we make the conversation about worship complex. We, we convolute it with personal preferences. We get in arguments over, I like this, he likes this, and, and we, we have worship wars, which is totally not a biblical notion. Either it's worship or it's not. Worship is the ultimate thing. And I really think that Psalm 150 in Scripture really gives us a good indication of what worship ought to be about. So I'm going to ask that you stand with me as we read this out of the reverence of God's Word. I just think that we ought to... We'll see at least four things from the text. We're going to see who... Well, maybe more than four. Who we are to praise. Where we're to praise. For what we're to praise how we're to praise, and who we are, and um, who should praise. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with string and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has, the bre has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. I'm jumping ahead to my end section, but if some of you didn't notice the way I read that, that was intentional. I preached this sermon once before. I'm, I'm showing my hand. I had to do just a similar sermon in seminary. And when I sat in front of Dr. York and nervous as all get out, I read it like that. And he said, your reading was very jarring to me. And that was kind of intimidating because I didn't know where he was going. He says, but I think you hit the text right on the head. We often will just just blaze through and go, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. We fail to realize, though, there's a reason why that repetition is in there. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise Him. Praise Him. There's an emphasis there that worship is about God and God alone. You know, Psalm 150 is, I think, the perfect just end to this book. Psalm, the book of Psalms has the, just the gamut of human emotions. And we see various ups and downs and it's got many different authors and various things like that. But I think this is a great doxology that ends this book. Because you go back to Psalm 1 and you see, blessed is the man who what? Who, who follows God, who delights in God's law, who worships Him. And we end with this same thing that we're to praise God and praise the Lord. In fact, I think one of the most fascinating things about this whole thing is verse 1 to me. Praise the Lord. In the Hebrew, that is one word. Hallelujah. We sing that word and we say that word all the time, and yet I don't think we ever truly grasp what we are saying. We are saying praise the Lord. Hallel comes from the, the, the Hebrew root, Hallel, which means to praise, and Yah is just a shortened form of, you know, Yahweh. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful thing we can say in one word. I mean, think about it. I was thinking about when I was looking at this sermon, and that's such a profound statement in one word. Think about when we sing that song, All I Have is Christ. What do we sing? Hallelujah, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. We're saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, all I have is Christ. Have you ever stopped to think about that one word? I mean, we say it so flippantly sometimes. When somebody 
passes and cuts us off at the rail. I go, hallelujah, Oof. praise the Lord. He, uh, glad he didn't hit me. Or some of you who've seen Medea's family reunion, hallelujah. She'll sit there and say, hallelujah, Jesus done saved your life. But do we actually stop and think about what we are saying? The fact that we're saying praise the Lord and that he is the only one who is worthy of our praise. I think then we continue in verse 1. We see that we are to praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. We see that we're to praise God everywhere. Oftentimes we have this, this unfounded idea that worship only occurs in this place and at this time. Worship is not limited to this building. Because I'll tell you, the church is not limited to this building. I think it's appropriate to say, and I think Bill <laughs> would really echo a good amen on this, the fact of that building over there is not our church. We're not building a new church. There is one church. That is the church of Jesus Christ. We are building a new building to house a local body. When people used to say, hey, we're going to the church house, I really think that probably was the most appropriate way to say it truth be told because it does house the church the church is the people and wherever the church is is where worship ought to take place we ought to praise him everywhere we go if we look at this we see that we're to praise god in his sanctuary most often and most likely this would have been equated with the old testament temple and the tabernacle we see that god manifested his presence in one location we know god is omnipresent and he is everywhere and that we ought to praise Him everywhere. But He did. He chose to, to manifest His glory and His presence in a specific location. But we see that now, even now, what does Paul call us as believers? That our bodies are what? Temples. God does dwell within us through His power of His Holy Spirit. And wherever His Holy Spirit is, is where we ought to praise Him. We are to praise Him everywhere. We continue on. We see that we are to praise Him in His mighty heavens. I like what MacArthur says. He says, look, basically, it's not enough that we as humanity praise him, but we are calling on all angelic beings, all of creation, to join with us in the heavens to praise God because that is the kind of praise that he is deserving of. But do we really believe that sometimes? When we go to our jobs, when we go to school, or wherever we go, are we worshiping? I don't mean that you're going to sit there and sing Oh Happy Day in the middle of your job. Some people may look at you funny. We're supposed to be a peculiar, peculiar people. But do we worship? Is, is our job and everything that we do in it, is it service to the Lord? John Piper wrote in his book, God is the Gospel, one of the things he talks about is we quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yes, I can do this. I can overcome this. But he talks about how the fact of included in that is I can be hungry. I can go without food. I can go without money through the power of Christ. And through the power of Christ, we can worship outside of this place. We can worship through his strength in our jobs as we glorify him. Because missions is one of the ways that we worship him. One of the ways we glorify him. But we see that we are to praise Him in His sanctuary. We might equate that here to this church building. As the body, we are to praise Him together. Outside of this, we are, are to praise Him wherever we go. I think one of the funny things is, 
for an example, what would you think of me if I told Tori, sweetheart, I only love you when we're at home? Or I only am going to show you love when we're in public? Or I'm only going to show you love when no one else is looking? Would you say that's true love? No, you'd probably say, I hope you like the couch. Because you'll be spending a lot of time there. But truth be told, that's how some of us act. God, I'll love you when I'm here on Sunday mornings. And I will love you when no one else is looking. But I do not demonstrate my love for God when I'm outside. You know that that's not true love. Worship is the same way. Our true authentic worship occurs outside of these, these boundaries. I'd also say they occur outside the boundaries of our own personal preference. Some say, I can only worship through hymns. I can only worship through contemporary music. I can only worship with a 20-minute sermon. I can only worship when we've got loud, banging music. I can only worship when the lights are low. I can only worship when, you know, I'm sitting in the third pew or the third chair from the left. That's not worship. That's idolatry. That's comfort. We're to worship God everywhere because worship is not limited to just one location. Donald Hustad, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, wrote a book. This is what he wrote about worship services in general. The worship service is a rehearsal for everyday life of worship. Someone has said that everyday life is true liturgy. Since, for the Christian believer, all of life should be worship. If the rehearsal is true worship in spirit and truth, life itself should be worship with the whole person, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Dr. Husted points out that worship service is just a part of worship because all of life is worship to God. If that is the case, we have to be intentional about our worship. We can't just get up here on Sunday morning and play church. We can't just throw a sermon together. We can't just throw a prayer together. We can't just throw music together. We've got to be intentional because this right here, what we're doing, is a rehearsal for what we will do Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and we'll do it again Sunday. All of life is to be worshipped. Now, that doesn't mean that brushing your teeth, you're like, oh, I'm glorifying the Lord right now. I mean, you know, I don't mean to be silly about it because we'd say there's some things that are more authentic forms of worship, but all of life is to be worshipped, not just a subset when we come to church. We've seen that we are to praise Him everywhere, but then we see for what we are to praise the Lord. Verse 2, praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. I think we sometimes get into a trap of separating what He does from who He is. And we see that this is closely tied. Look, if you look in Exodus 15, and Moses, you don't have to turn there, but his song recounts the wondrous deeds of the Lord. We also see in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. What's the whole point of the Shema? That parents instruct their children on what the Lord has done. If you see through Deuteronomy and Numbers, what does he keep saying? Do this so that you might remember what I, the Lord, did. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. How many times do we see that in the Old Testament? God did not want them to forget what he had done because what he had done for them was worthy of praise. We see in the New Testament with Mary's Magnificat, she praises the Lord with her soul because of what God is doing, what God has done, what God will do. 
If you look at it, we ought to praise God for what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. He is a God who is faithful. He's the same that is, you know, yesterday, today, and forevermore. We ought to praise God for what he does. And closely tied to that is because of who he is. But let me back up one thing and say something. We ought to praise God for things he does, such as his love for us and his discipline for us. God disciplines those he loves. I tell you, if there's been one lesson I have learned from, from Bill's preaching is that God disciplines and not punishes his, his loved ones. Do we thank God for his discipline? That is something that he does. That is his mighty act. It's discipline in our lives. The most important thing that we praise him for is the fact that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. You want to talk about a mighty deed? How many of us could sacrifice our own child to save people who just didn't deserve it? That in and of itself is enough for us to praise God. And so we jump back and we see that it's also important to see that we praise God for who He is because, again, as I have already pointed out, God does what He does because He is who He is. God does not act contrary to His character, but instead, He is God, and He acts accordingly. There are so many attributes of the, the, the fact that God is holy. He's the one true living God. I'm just going to recount some of them to you, and I can't even exhaust this list. We see that he's Elohim, the creator, in Genesis 1. Adonai, the Lord, Genesis 15, 2. Jehovah Jireh, the provider, Genesis 22. El Elyon, the God most high, Genesis 14, 2. El Shaddai, all, Almighty God, Genesis 17. Jehovah Rapha, the healer, Exodus 15, 26. Abba, Father, Savior, Master, Lord, what we just sang about. All to us, as we have sung about, all that we have. That is who God is. Trust me, there are so many other ways that God describes himself. But do you actually sit down and pray that way? I tell you, one of the most challenging things that I ever did was start praying to God using the different names that he has called in Scripture. Because what you will find yourself doing at that point is praying, God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, I thank you for the provisions that you have given to me. You find out that you will praise him for who he is and for what he does because you will see that they are both very much connected. I think one of the things that's interesting too is we also need to praise God because He's a jealous God. He's a God who is jealous. And we see that in, in Exodus chapter 20 when He says, You should not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Why is God jealous? When we think about jealousy, we think about the fact that we think of our petty human emotions where we feel that somebody is getting something that we deserve. Well, imagine God's jealousy when somebody gets worship that he truly does deserve. Only God deserves worship. That's why he can be jealous, because he is a perfect and holy and just God, and we are not. So we need to understand that's part of who he is. And I think the other thing that important to why we should praise him for who he is is because until you understand who he is you cannot understand who you are do, do we understand ourselves in light of humanity or do we understand ourselves in the light of Christ 
and see our wretched sin. Isaiah, you look at him in chapter 6. When he stood before the presence of a holy God, he didn't go, I'm doing all right. I'm okay. I'm pretty good, Lord. I think I'll make it. What does he say? He says, woe is me. He recognized how wretched he was, but until we truly praise God for who he is, we will not see who we are in the light of his glory. And we realize how small and insignificant we are and that how much more important and how much much more glorious that makes the salvation of Christ when we see that we did not deserve it and then we see who Christ is and that the fact that he did not take being, you know, part of, you know, being made in the image of God and the fact that he was God in the flesh, he didn't take that as something to be grasped. He didn't take that as something less. He understood who he was so that we might understand who we are. Unfortunately, we just, we separate that too often. I think Casting Crowns actually does a really good job in one of their songs in pointing to the fact of this, of this notion. Songs, Who Am I? And it says, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Is that really how we feel in our conversations? What a beautiful expression of the very fact that God is who he is and does what he does. And that he is deserving of glory and praise. So we have seen that, that we are to praise God, we are to praise Him everywhere, and that, and that we are to praise Him for who He is and what He does. Then we come to one of my favorite parts of this passage, verses 3 through 5. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. We see a lot of um, variety there, and we see some things in there. But one of the things that this talking about is the proper means of praise. How we are to praise. That is where the worship war debate comes in that I mentioned earlier. Should we have guitars? Should we have drums? Should we sing contemporary? Should we sing hymns? Should we have no music at all? What kind of a term is worship war? It's a man-made one. Because we're self-focused. There's a funny video that I, I wish I had with me. And this guy takes some of the old songs and he replaces God's name or any reference to him and replaces it with I. Like, oh, I lift my name on high. Oh, I love to sing my praises. And then, I exalt me. We laugh. I love me, Lord, and I lift my voice. We laugh at that and get a good little chuckle. But is that not how we are sometimes? Because we think the proper means of praise is whatever makes me comfortable. Whether it's 75 degrees, whether it's pews or chairs. That's not what it's about. God gives us the proper means of praise. I think what you see here is that there's a general principle here that we see a variety of instruments. That we see that God has given us a variety of ways in which we can worship Him. You see that the trumpet, the lute and the harp and tambourine, all of these would have been in the temple worship. They were a variety of things, and they each served a different function, each served a different purpose. You know, you've got our piano, we've got a keyboard, a guitar, a djembe, we've got drums, different things we have up here, and it's okay because God has given us freedom to worship Him with a variety. Now, the one thing in here that we all kind of like to skip over is in verse 4. Dance. Some of you are about to cry and cringe when I said the word. Some of you can't take it. 
And that's because in the past people have abused it. And we see what dance has become in the secular world and outside, and we're scared of that. And, and we should be to a certain degree. But the, the fact is, though, we don't embrace it. We won't even look at it. Or if we do embrace it, we call it interpretive movement, creative movement, moving in the spirit, or the Baptist shuffle, you know, something like this. Now, you're okay, but actually if your hips move, you're borderline on dancing. You lift up any feet, you're dancing. And we as Baptists don't do that. We, we as Baptists have a tendency that if someone's driving down the road and they swerve off in a ditch on heresy, we'll swerve on the other side of the ditch just to prove how wrong they were. So we won't even, we won't even thank you, Braden. Braden got that one, so I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but we do this with dance. We, we won't even acknowledge it. Do you remember that quote from Dr. Hustad? He said, Life itself should be worshipped with a whole person, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Also in the ESV study notes, it says, Praise deserves the full expression of human energy and devotion. With its mixture of wind, strings, percussion, and rhythmic dance, it gives the impression of a loud song and ceaseless motion. The worshiper's whole body offering praise to God. Dance is more about than just breaking it down and having a good time and shaking it for the Lord. What it's about is the fact that we have a physical expression of worship. When God saved you, did He just save your soul or did He redeem all of you? He redeemed all of you and we ought to use all of us to praise Him. I expect next Sunday that when Jeff's up here, we will probably have people dancing in the aisles or, and it'll probably be my fault. But you, do you look, when you look around though, do you see people in the church who don't have a good physical expression of praise? We're supposed to be the elated elect and instead we look like the frozen chosen. Have you ever looked around sometimes? I don't advise it because then you become judgmental. But have you ever looked around some people? What does that say about our worship? Our physical expression is an external display of the internal reality that is in our hearts. I think that's what he's talking about with dance there. There's a physical expression. But the fact is, look at your countenance when you go into work or when you come into worship. What does your countenance show? What does your face show? Does it show the internal reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has risen from the dead and he has saved you from your sins? Or does it look like you have sucked on a lemon for the last 30 minutes before you came into worship? That's even with some of us, though, that fall asleep in worship. What does that say about our worship? Huh? Praise the Lord. What does that say about us? What is the internal reality that it demonstrates? I have to give a caveat here, too, that also, it doesn't mean that we always have to be, as my brother would say, juking in worship and raising our hands and doing this. There is something to be said for stillness and quietness and solemnness in our worship. There is something to be said for that. That is also a physical expression of the reverence that we have for God. Too often we want to make everything emotional and you know just hyper. We want the Energizer Bunny after drinking 35 Red Bulls. That's the kind of worship we want. You know, Jeff playing everything upbeat and twice the speed it needs to be. Sometimes we need slowness. We live in a fast-paced world. So this, our physical expression of just standing still sometimes with our arms folded or with our hands just solemnly lifted, there's a place for it in worship. The ultimate thing is, are we being holistic? Are we using every fiber of our beings to praise the Lord? 
You know, they say variety is the spice of life, and shouldn't that be in our worship as well? Shouldn't we have variety? Otherwise, we become ritualistic, and then we're just doing the same thing over again, and it's not worship either. There's something to be said for repetition, but there's also something to be said for variety as well. But here's the caveat I want to give to this. Everything that we do, everything that we've been allotted to praise God with has to be done at a proper heart and proper motive. If you're dancing to draw attention to yourself or you're sitting still to draw attention to yourself, it is sin and idolatry and is not God-focused. But I also want to also say that worship is participatory. That's what I've been getting at. We are to participate. Those of you in there, and I'm probably going to step on some toes and some hearts, who sit there and don't sing, no, it's not being a legalistic issue, but you ought to want to sing. You ought to want to sing the songs. And even when Bill's preaching, that is not a time for you to check out and say, oh, play on my iPad or sleep or whatever. You're supposed to participate because we have an audience of one. When Bill preaches, he is preaching to you, but he is preaching for the Lord. When Scott preaches, Todd preaches, when Ricky and them pray, when Jeff and them lead, we're not the ones being entertained. We're not the audience. It's an audience of God. We're supposed to participate. But the other thing I want to say is that worship is not just limited to music. That is something that I think we at Grace kind of have down pat, that it's not just music. Our preaching is worship. The reading of Scripture that we do is worship. Do you know how many churches don't read the Scripture out loud in the service anymore? Or how many even pastors don't even crack the book, the Bible, in their sermons anymore? That's worship. Missions is worship. Prayer is worship. Service to God is worship. Service to one another. Fellowship can be worship. All of this is worship and can be. But remember, it has to be done the right motive. When I talk about fellowship, it's pointing to God. I'm not talking about the socialization of the fact that we're talking about what dress we're going to wear next week or what shoes we wore or what ball game was on. That can be used for God's glory. But we must be intentional about our worship. The other thing I want to say is fasting can be worship. Dancing and fasting, two things that we in Baptists avoid. But fasting can be worshipped when it's coupled with prayer. Bob Coughlin writes, Singing, shouting, dancing, lifting hands, bowing, kneeling, all these things and other things can honor God when we, from a heart of, as an expression of gratefulness for God's grace, when they're done from that. And they should be an overflow of the worship we give to God through our daily lives. The hands we lift to worship to God must be holy hands. I think he nails it on the head. All of that variety we've been given, we've been given so much freedom in worship that you have no idea. There are some people who say, unless it is clearly in Scripture, we don't do it. But I think that we've been given some freedom in the musical instruments we use, the types of songs we use. But it has to be done with holy hands. It has to be a pure heart. Finally, we come to verse 6. And we see who is to praise. It says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. At the beginning, I said that all of creation was created for this. Let everything that has breath. And I'll tell you why. Breath indicates life. And a life indicates that there was a creator of that life who deserves that praise. All of creation is to praise God. I think you see it in Colossians 1 when we said that all things are for Him. We also see it in Psalm 19.1 when we say the heavens declare the glory of the God. We see this. We also see it in Psalm 
148 on the next page. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Do you see? He is calling for all of creation to praise the Lord. Everything that has breath to praise the Lord. Here's the thing. Those of us who have been redeemed not only have a physical breath in us, we have a spiritual life in us. God has given us life through His Son, Jesus Christ, the living water. So not only should we praise Him for the physical life that we have and the physical breath, but we have a spiritual breath in us that awoken us to the fact of our sin and pointed us to a Savior, Jesus Christ. We ought to praise Him for that. Everything that has breath, praise the Lord. That's not an option. That's a command. That's a duty. But above all, it is a high honor for us to praise the one true living God. I think one of the best illustrations that we see of this is in Luke chapter 19, verses 39 and 40. What will happen if we don't praise? We who have been saved, we who are redeemed, do not praise Him. Jesus makes His triumphant entry. And people are praising Him and they're shouting, Hosanna, and all this is going on. And the Pharisees are ticked. They are irate. And they're telling them, stop them. Hush your disciples. Shut them up. Shut them up. You need to make them stop. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. God deserves praise. And He will get praise. The stones, the very stones, inanimate objects would cry out to the praise of God. Are you willing to turn over your responsibility of praising God to some stones? Personally, I'm not. We are obligated to praise Him, but we should want to. Not out of a legalism, but look at the transformation. Look at the fact of who God is, what He has done. That ought to put us in an attitude of worship. I think it's clear what we've seen in Scripture, that worship is part of a believer's life. It's part of what the church ought to do. It's the ultimate goal of the church. We're to praise God. We're to praise the Lord, the Lord only. We're to praise Him for who He is, for what He does. We're to praise Him with variety. We're to praise Him with our whole beings. We're to praise Him just out of a love for Him. And we who have breath are to praise the Lord. I hope you caught when we read earlier when I mentioned the fact of the emphasis ought to be on the Lord. When you look at the passage, do you see that it's about God? It's not even just about trumpets and dance. It's about God and the reasons why we praise Him, how we praise Him, what we're praising for, all these things. I hope that changes the way you read that passage next time. You know, actually, I heard it when I got ordained. My father-in-law read that that way and it was jarring to me but it grasped me and I thought it was the most biblical reading that we have this is a final doxology to sum up this book of Psalms but I, I tell you this morning y'all sang a song and it tells you it's so funny how the Lord does this but Joachim Neander wrote a song praise to the Lord the Almighty and I think the fourth verse is a great capitulation of what Psalm 150 is all about in one verse I think that we see we need to praise the Lord. We need to praise Him everywhere we go. We need to praise Him for who He is, for what He does. We need to praise Him 
with these symbols, with the trumpet, with variety. We need to praise Him with our whole being. Because we have breath, we need to praise the Lord. And so I, I close with this. I really think what he said in verse 4 really just sums us up when he said, Praise to the Lord, O let all that is in me adore Him. All that hath life and breath come now with praises before Him. Let the Amen sound from His people again. Gladly for I we adore Him. Father, we thank You for who You are. God, we give You praise right here in this body, the church, God, that you have redeemed and you have called the baptized believers that you have brought together. God, may we take this worship and may we go outside of this place recognizing that worship of you is not limited here because you are not limited to just here. But we do thank you for your manifested presence in this place. And God, may we continue to praise you for who you are and for your excellent deeds and your great and mighty deeds that you do. God, from times of old in the Old Testament, God, to, to now, to what you have done with your son, Jesus Christ, and what you continually do in our lives every day, even just by giving us breath. God, may we, the next time we worship in corporate worship together, not focus about we don't like this or we like this, but Lord, we love you. And the reason why we use a guitar or a piano or why we sing a cappella or why we sit here and God, while we hear preaching and engage and learn from you and fast and pray and do missions is for your honor and your glory. And may we express ourselves with holistic praise, a true external display of the internal reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. And God, those of us who do have breath, not just physical breath, but spiritual breath, God, because it's only through that spiritual breath and that spiritual life that we truly can worship you in spirit and truth. It's only by your power and by your strength and by your grace that we can do any of this. Otherwise, it is meaningless. So, Father, we just want to say to you, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. May you be glorified in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.